I think theology's for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Welcome, friends, to the broadcast. This is Michael Patton, and this is Theology Unplugged, coming to you from the Credo House in Edmond, Oklahoma, joined by Tim and Sam and JJ. Welcome, guys. How are y'all doing? Doing Great. Good. Good. We all uh, look like we're busy studying again for this uh, broadcast. It's a a great broadcast. A little bit fiery got last time, but that's okay. Our audience members were stressed out and wondering if everybody showed back up for this broadcast, and you know what? Everybody did. Um, uh, we all still love each other. JJ didn't, but we did go by his house and pick him up, and <laughs> we, we drug him here. So, so he's here with us. We're going to continue today, guys, talking about uh, the uh, history of the gifts. We've been talking about the charismatic gifts, uh, the the certain gifts that are in dispute. Uh, uh, primarily, we're talking about the gift of tongues, the gift of uh, healing, the gift of prophecy. We're we're distinguishing between two groups that are sometimes called cessationists and sometimes called continuationists. And this is what we've been discussing over the last few weeks. And this is, uh, this is an important issue in the church because, uh, Sam, you believe that it, it affects church life and that, that uh, people should be pursuing this, that churches should be pursuing these gifts that are in question. And uh, Tim and I here on the other side, at least me, I'm not a charismatic, and I'm, I'm very open to becoming a charismatic. I've often said that I am the most hopeful of all that charismatic gifts are still going on because I want to experience the power of God. I want God's presence in a special way. However, me, myself, as I said last time, have a hurdle. And one of these big hurdles is not so much the Scripture. The Scripture, I think, I, I, can, I can see through the lens of charismatic. As a matter of fact, I think I can see through it, it through the lens of the charismatic gifts continuing more than I can them ceasing. However, as I look across church history and see what I believe to be the cessation of these gifts in church history, that causes me to pause. And the primary reason it causes me to pause is because it's the same Holy Spirit. Why did the Holy Spirit stop? And add to that, I'm a Calvinist. I believe in the sovereignty of God, and I don't believe he's a cheerleader up in heaven saying, gosh, I wish somebody would get these gifts and figure out that I want them to prophesy and I want them to heal, but they're just not doing what I want them to. And so my my contention is that since church history, in my opinion, and I know you guys have a different opinion, we're going to get into that some more. Since church history, in my opinion, evidences the cessation of these gifts, we've got a few different options. Number one is to explain that secession, either as an act of disobedience in church history to where the people who were supposed to be promoting and utilizing these gifts weren't, and so it was kind of an act of disobedience, or possibly that for some reason these latter days uh, there has been a latter reign maybe of the presence of the Holy Spirit and God works itinerantly in the sense that maybe maybe his presence is bookends to history. Maybe, maybe it started in the early church, it died out, and it's his own sovereign will that it died out, but now he's picking it back up in these last days. Somehow you just got to second base with with the pitcher out and not even throwing the ball because for our listeners, they need to understand that you just made a large assumption in saying they have ceased. Now we have to explain why. Well, we're not even granting that premise because proof has to be given as to why they ceased 
and it has to be better than an argument from silence. Well, I mean, but even D.A. Carson says, uh, and this is in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, Showing the Spirit, uh, on page 166, he says, uh, from the death of Montanism until the turn of the present century, so most of church history, such phenomena were never part of a major movement. In each instance, the group involved was small, and so and he is coming from a continuationist perspective, and he says in in each instance that you may see possibly uh, the charismata coming taking place, the group involved was small and generally on the fringe of Christianity. Uh, the great movements of piety and reformation that have, in God's mercy, occasionally refreshed and renewed the church were mo- were not demonstrably crippled because their leaders did not say speak in tongues. Uh, Those who have thoughtfully read the devotional and theological literature of the Puritans will not be easily convinced that their spirituality was less deep, holy, powerful, spiritual, prompted, and then he goes on. So I think he's even uh, conceding that uh, since the Montanists, he's not seeing anything until the turn of the century, this century. All right, here's another quote from Carson from that same book, if we want to quote, Showing the Spirit, where Carson observes, there is enough evidence that some form of charismatic gifts continued sporadically across the centuries of church history that it is futile to insist on doctrinaire grounds that every report is spurious or a psychological aberration. Yeah. Well, you you just quoted the sentence before the section that I quoted. So he well, so let's, after let's, he wrote uh, let's, that. Let's take just a moment just for the sake of our readers and let's just see and I nobody holds Don Carson in higher regard than I do. And let's just see if history bears out his statement because I don't believe it does. So let me just very quickly um, let's start with uh, the the early church. Every, everyone acknowledges then the Didache, which is probably the earliest document that we have outside the New Testament. Obviously, was affirming the existence of of prophets throughout the church, because in fact, much of the document is given over to instructions about how to deal with prophets. We have the Epistle of Barnabas, written sometime between seventy and thirty one thirty two A.D., that talks about extensively about the Spirit of God personally prophesying through us. The author of the Shepherd of Hermas. Uh, numerous revelatory insights through visions and dreams. Justin Martyr, the most famous and influential second century apologist, died in 165. Um, He says, I quote, for the prophetical gifts remain with us even to the present time. Um, He talks about a a number of other gifts as well, but they will be, uh, quotes will be in my blog post on this. Irenaeus, whom Tim listed as one of the top ten theologians in church history, died in 202 I still believe that, by the way. Um, He says, In like manner, we do also hear many brethren in the church who possess prophetic gifts, who through the Spirit speak all kinds of languages, bring to light for the general benefit the hidden things of men, declare the mysteries of God. Um, Other quotes very similar to that. Tertullian, who first coined the uh, term Trinity for us, has dozens of references to the operation of spiritual gifts uh, in the life of the church and in his own ministry as well. Um, we have uh, Theodotus, late second century, talking about spiritual gifts. Clement of Alexandria, talking about the spiritual gifts of First Corinthians twelve, operative in his day. Origen died two fifty four, um, uh, after long after the death of Montanus, who acknowledged the operation of the gifts in his day. Uh, Hippolytus died two thirty six, talks about the exercise of healing gifts. Novation in his treatise on the Trinity. Cyprian, Bishop of Carthage, died 258, spoke of the gift of prophecy and receiving visions. Eusebius of Caesarea, theologian, church historian of the, uh, from the court of Constantine, uh, also talks about the legitimacy of prophecy as a gift. Cyril of Jerusalem died 386, 
um, talks about uh, the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues. Um, we have the Cappadocian Fathers, your, some of your favorites, Tim, mid to late 4th century. Basil of Caesarea talks about word of wisdom, gifts of healing uh, operating as well as prophecy in his day. Same on the part of Gregory of Nyssa, his, uh, Basil's younger brother. Um, Gregory of Nazianzen, the last Cappadocian, um, he doesn't talk extensively about gifts, but he does give extensive descriptions of the physical healing of both his mother and father. Hilary of Poitiers, 356 A.D., talks about gifts of healings, working of miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues in his day. Um, Augustine, um, again, early on, Augustine, yes, Augustine believed that tongues had ceased. Uh, he was rather um, early on in, in his ministry, um, very much resistant to the operation of the gifts. And then toward the end of his life, and especially in his retractions, written about a two years before he died, um, said that we have so many miracles of healing that we can't even document them all, although he insisted on written records. And he himself personally devoted extensive time to going out and interviewing the people um, who, had, um, who had been healed. And then if you just go into the late uh, patristic, early medieval, and into the medieval period, you have John of Egypt, died 394, Pacomius, 346, Leo the Great, John Viev of Paris, Gregory the Great, some call him the first pope, died 604, Gregory of Tours, 7th century, Venerable Bede, into the 8th century, um, Cuthbert, Bernard of Clairvaux, Richard of St. Victor, we're now into the uh, early Middle Ages, uh, Anthony of Padua, Bonaventure, Francis of Assisi, numerous accounts of the gifts operative in his life and ministry. Thomas Aquinas affirmed them. Uh, all of the medieval mystics, and I've got a list of about a dozen I could give. Um, just one other example, just for the sake of time, I know I'm dominating here. Let's take, for example, the Presbyterians in uh, the post-Reformation period. Let's take uh, John Knox, his mentor, George Wishart, uh, died 1546. John Welsh died 1622. Robert Bruce 1631. Alexander Peden 1686. Uh, Robert Fleming 1694. Samuel Rutherford, who was one of the major architects of the Westminster Confession, all of whom have extensive testimony of the operation of the gift of prophecy in their lives, all of which is thoroughly documented and explained in great detail in Jack Deere's book, Surprised by the Voice of God. So just a sampling here of the fact that we do have reputable people throughout the course of church history in a time, honestly, when it's just shocking that we have any record at all of this, given, as I said, the fact that the Roman Catholic Church basically marginalized the laity, um, silenced the voice of anyone other than the local priest and bishop, among a people who had no access to the Bible in their own language, who knew nothing about spiritual gifts other than what maybe the bishop or the priest would tell them, um, and yet we still have a, a consistent flow of evidence that indicates that the Spirit of God was working in these ways and through these charismatic gifts. We don't always have the language of the New Testament used, as is the case with Spurgeon, but again, you know, we, we've talked about Spurgeon on numerous occasions, and I would still say that Spurgeon was probably a cessationist. And yet he was, you know, I get to the point where, my goodness, uh, call it a kumquat, I couldn't care less. Uh, if, if that kind of operation of the Spirit uh, in revelatory gifts bore the fruit that it did in his ministry, 
Uh, I honestly couldn't care less what you call it, whether he called it a word of knowledge or a prophecy or somebody else just called it a profound supernatural insight. To me, at that point, we're, we're debating over something that's really ultimately irrelevant. The relevant question is, did it happen? Was it real? Was the Spirit of God doing this? And if so, is it something that we ought to seek and long for and pursue in our own lives and ministries? Let me let me just jump in here, if I could, for a moment. And I've got to come in and represent at least the other side, even though I'm I'm hanging with what you're saying, and you know I'm tracking with you, and I say to myself, you know, okay, let's let, let's think about these things in a different way as well. Now, now one of the things that all of those people you brought up here and there peppered in there, because I've read all the accounts that you're talking about as well. Uh, a lot of them, yes, are talking about the spiritual gifts still continue on. Some of them are talking about just how to test a prophet, you know, an itinerant prophet that comes to your town, you know, and, and how to how to make sure that he's generous and how to make sure that he's not trying to take money from people and all that kind of stuff, not so much affirming anything. Well, that was the didache, and that was first century, late first century. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the shepherd was himself a prophet who wrote about angelic visions and all kinds of stuff and says that the stuff he got was from a vision. I doubt you guys accept the shepherd as being a legitimate prophecy. I, I don't know. Do you? Probably not. I mean, certainly, uh, you know, there was a move by some to want to include it in, in the canon of Scripture, and it was obviously... Not by you, though, right? No. no. Okay. <laughs> uh, and, and as well, whenever we get to people like Augustine and his later life and his kind of recantations about that, a lot of the stuff I want to place in the categories that we've been discussing. Just to be fair, I don't think that r- touching a relic and coming back to life or, or having these type of relics that heal people would qualify for the charismatic stuff that I'm talking about. And then through the Middle Ages, that's a lot of the testimony that you have is a lot of relics being used to heal people, a lot of things being venerated within the church as having but, healing power, but that's not the gift of healing. See, Michael, you're making about. my very point. You're saying we're entering into a season of church history in which people were superstitious, who were given over to magical beliefs, who invested in relics and pilgrimages and uh, other sorts of uh, practices associated with the Roman, uh, with uh, the medieval Catholic Church, obviously in a context in which people are languishing in such complete spiritual darkness, and I say complete, there are obviously exceptions along the way, but um, that we would find anything that would remotely appro- approximate what we read about in the New Testament is it, is in itself surprising. I mean, this is a period during which um, you know the uh, the the People would would uh, secretly sneak out of the of the uh, Eucharistic service a morsel of the consecrated bread or a drop of the uh, wine that had been blessed by the priest, thinking that it had supernatural powers, and they would use it to fertilize their gardens. Wives would grind it up and put it in their husbands' breakfast, hoping it would serve as an aphrodisiac mm-hmm. and, and, and enhance their sex life. I mean, there was such superstitious. Um, uh, uh, beliefs that dominated medieval Catholicism that this is precisely the point that I'm making. Why would we expect to find in that particular context a robust and solidly orthodox and biblical perspective on the gifts of the Spirit? So here's, my, uh, here's what I would say. is It doesn't have to be an orthodox or a robust doctrine of the gifts of the Spirit. It has to be a robust and, and pr- uh, a practice that comes across that you see because it's always been passive. It's not something, I mean, whenever the Holy Spirit came upon the people, 
they spoke in tongues. It wasn't as if there was some laity that they had to go to to discuss whether or not speaking in tongues was legitimate beforehand, but it was that they just spoke in tongues. The gifts just happened. And so whenever I'm looking at it in church history, I don't need to see a large doctrine about it. I don't even need to see these words cessation or non-cessation or anything like that. But what I see is the silence of tongues and healings from a person, not from relics, and uh, of prophecy. Now, there are some people who do talk about prophecy, but then they redefine it in a different way sometimes. Now, now again, I'm not saying it's completely silent at all. I, I am saying, and I do see that there it is peppered throughout church history, but here's the key, and the reason why I keep on bringing this up, and it's so important to me, is that the modern charismatic movement and the third wave movement and what you guys are trying to say is that it should be normative, and I don't see it as normative. Or normal. Or normal. I see it as maybe sporadic, peppered, legitimate here and there, hard to test, but certainly not Acts normal, certainly not First Corinthians normal, certainly not what it is that we're being what, told is what the Holy Spirit is you know, wanting I, for us and what he does. And, and even Irenaeus, I mean, some of the examples, like Tertullian is, is with Montanus, you know, and Montanus is, is, has two ladies that have left their husbands that say that they're prophets, you know, I mean, so... So to use Tertullian, it can't be like an open-shut case because uh, of his connection with Montanus. And then Irenaeus are as you, well. Are you suggesting that the Montanists were heretics? Well, I mean, so they were definitely treated mainly. I mean, so Montanus is making a case that Scripture is not necessary, uh, that that uh, that, prof, that these ladies— I mean, I wouldn't in any way— that Montanus said Scripture wasn't necessary? Well, I, I'd have to find it. I don't have a, I mean, I would not in any way say that Montanism is looked at through church history as a very positive— they, we don't have they, were Christologically and they were Christologically— Perfectly orthodox. They were never critiqued because they rejected some fundamental Christian truth. They were criticized, and I, admittedly so, because they had abused the way the, the prophetic gift, as this is described in 1 Corinthians 14. They treated the prophet as a passive instrument who oftentimes would fall into some sort of ecstatic trance and become just a, a, a tool of the Spirit without any conscious input, which is obviously contrary to 1 Corinthians 14. But again, the fact that someone abused a spiritual gift at a particular point in history doesn't mean that God is not desiring that people properly use that spiritual gift at that time in the history of the church. But then Irenaeus, who he uses well, I mean, he does quote as well saying that uh, he says, The Holy Spirit gave signs of his presence at the beginning of Christ's ministry, and after his ascension he gave still more, but since that time signs have diminished. And so he, so he is in a world that I think these gifts are still being operative. This is the same man who, against heresy, says it is impossible to enumerate the charisms which throughout the world the church has received from God. And again says, we hear of many members of the church who have prophetic gifts and by the Spirit speak with all kinds of tongues. We yes. hear of. We hear of. That's an interesting phrase. I mean, if I was to say, and say, Sam, have you ever heard of that? Would that be normative in your church? Would that be something that is a part of your congregation? I've heard of things myself. And just because whether I believe in them or don't believe in them, I've heard of more than Irenaeus. And I could write that down and say I've heard of them as well. The point being is this. Is it a part of the personal life of these men? Is it a part of something that they embrace personally? Or is it something they've heard of in the past? And secondly, how do you explain? And this is important, and I need to get to this before we leave because it's so important. I want to hear you guys' explanation of this. But how do we explain people like John Owen who basically says... 
it, they have ceased. Jonathan Edwards, who says that they ceased, the gifts have ceased, he says. The Westminster Confession, um, uh, John Calvin, on and on we can go through these guys, and it's not so much that I have to see it in them. It's that these are men that I respect greatly. These are men that I feel like we're following the Lord, and I don't know what to do with so many people who did not practice them, who did not promote them, who did not see them the way that you guys see them, and to say, what, what do I do with them? Do I say that they weren't really following the Lord? Do I say that? No, I mean, any more than you would say, good grief. Uh, you're a Baptist, aren't you, Michael? You're a Presbyterian? No. Do you pl- do you practice infant baptism? No. Okay, so you don't practice infant baptism. So the fact that John Owen and John Calvin and Jonathan Edwards did, what do we do with that? Were they not following the Lord that they could have mis no, just a second right. that they could have misinterpreted Scripture and therefore not practiced something that you believe is very clearly biblical? If somebody reads the Scriptures and they interpret it differently from the way that you do. And that informs, therefore, how they pray, what they will allow in their churches, what they teach their people, and it manifests itself in a particular practice or the absence thereof. Am I to conclude from that that simply because I admire these people, I've got to embrace their view? There are countless things that Calvin taught and Edwards taught and Owen taught that you disagree with, that you think they were wrong. When I see these individuals, I understand the context in which they were operating. Calvin was dealing at a time in which the Roman Catholic Church was trying to validate itself as the one sole true church of God by appealing to a number of what may well have been counterfeit miracles. Uh, Luther was having to deal with some radicals, the Zwickau prophets and Thomas Munzer, who were certifiably nuts. The, we're not talking about Christian people when we're well, talking well, about Luther Thomas Luther was certifiably Munzer. nuts himself, well, yeah, but, but in a good way. <laughs> but nobody's advocating the, the, that we, we follow the radical Anabaptists who talking. prejudice Luther and Calvin and all of the Reformers against any concept of miraculous I'm gifts. I'm not talking day. about doctrine, though. You must understand, I'm not sitting here saying that it is a doctrine that they just rejected. It is a practice that did not come upon them. But it didn't come upon them because they didn't pray for it. They okay. were resistant to it. But, it but had... is that what happened in the New Testament? Yes. Yeah. Is that in the Acts? Why, Book did, of Acts? why did Paul have to say to the Corinthians, forbid not the speaking in tongues? They were forbidding it. Here it was being given. They say, no, we're not going to do it. What do you do with 1 Thessalonians 5? In the church, they were not despising prophetic utterances. Well, definitely. But, but the thing is, in Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 2, it's not as if they had to ask for it. Whenever a prophet has a prophecy, do you have to believe in it first, or does God just come upon you? And in the biblical witness well, the way I that think, I see it. I think it, I, I could give you dozens of examples where people who were hardcore cessationists would say, would give instances of where they thought God had revealed something to them for somebody else, and they utterly dismissed it. They flushed it down the mental toilet, so to speak. They explained it in other terms, or they said, this just has to be accountable. Maybe it's a demon. I just don't believe God does those things. I'm not open to it. Well, okay, but you got to understand that it can be peppered in here and there. But again, that is not normative. Whenever I'm talking about this, you're talking to somebody who honestly, I, I 
pray for these things. I honestly ask for these things. Did Edwards and Calvin and Owen and Luther pray for these things? I don't know, but here's the thing. Well, of course they didn't because they didn't believe they were being given. Well, no, no. I mean, you how, how do you know because that? Because you asked how, how, how do you know that they didn't pray for these things? Because they didn't believe they existed. They're praying for something they don't believe God does. But how do you know they didn't pray for them first? And then based upon that, I'll believe in these things. I'm just using the same argument you used last time whenever you said, how do you know that these things didn't happen? An argument from science. Well, I think, but, Sam, okay. Sam's giving you a good answer for why these things didn't sort of sees them and it's a little bit misleading to bring up acts 2 because we've already spent many broadcasts talking about is acts 2 or is first corinthians 14 going to be more normative for what it looks like to conduct this in the life of the church and paul seems to understand that this is something you have to earnestly seek you have to cultivate it you have to not quench it you have to not suppress it it's not ecstatic it doesn't seize you it doesn't overtake you and, 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 and so, therefore, it wouldn't be surprising that somebody who's not actively seeking these things would then not experience them. Well, they began I, to speak in tongues I, in Acts chapter 10. They began think, to speak I in tongues in Acts is, chapter 19. I Those think are the God two is examples more than willing That's to say to you if, you, if you as a church, if you as my people are willing to live and operate without these gifts, then you will. When Paul gets to give you a concrete example, 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, Let the one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. All right, what if that person doesn't pray that he may interpret? What if he disobeys that for whatever reason? Is God going to impose the gift of interpretation on that individual contrary to his will, contrary to the, to the fact that he has not done what God told him to do? I don't believe so. Well, well I'm I don't not worried believe... about the interpreting part. I'm talking about the speaking in tongues part. No, I'm for, just... First of all, because no, in Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 19, or Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 19, they did not pray for it. It just came upon them. you you got to understand, I know that well, the way you guys see that, but you got to understand that whenever I look at it through example in the New Testament, I see God just doing it through people. I see... Wait a minute, wait, wait. Just doing it. You mean sovereignly imposing gifts irrespective of the prayer and the desire and the openness and the hunger of the people for them? Well, Cornelius' household. Okay, in the book of Acts. Granted, Pentecost is rather exceptional given the fact that we have a major transition from pre-Pentecost to post-Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit, undoubtedly so. Cornelius is the first breaking through of the gospel into the Gentile world. In the situation of Acts 19, we have the uh, these disciples of John the Baptist who lived in this transitional period who had not, not even heard got, whether or not... We got them arguing for a transitional well, of period. Course, of course it was. <laughs> um, Acts 19, where, where uh, they had not even heard whether Pentecost had happened. They knew nothing about the Holy Spirit. But let's go into 1 Corinthians and look at it and see if, in fact, that's the way it is presented. We, we have in 1 Corinthians um, uh, 12 through 14, very clearly, Paul exhorting people to um, facilitate the gifts, to seek the gifts, to pray for particular gifts, not to forbid the, the people to exercise such gifts. Uh, he, he describes uh, tongues as being totally within the power of the individual. You can speak at will. You can remain silent at will. The same with prophets. The spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. So spiritual gifts were subject to the will of the people. God just doesn't violate, in a sense, or override um, our our beliefs and our desires and, and what we want to see happen in our lives by saying, look, by golly, I want you to speak in tongues, and you're going to speak in tongues whether you want to or not, whether you believe that's what it is or not. Zap. 
That's just not the way God functions. I just don't think that's how God operates. I mean, I'm as well, much a Calvinist as anybody, but you know, if God says to me, you have not because you ask not, uh, I think God says, look, I'm going to give it to you whether you ask or not. Well, that's not what he says. He said, you don't have because you don't pray. Yeah, yeah, but in the book of Acts, I mean, whenever you're talking about the book of Acts, those are the examples that I have to go by. Whenever you're talking about Corinthians, you're talking about how they're exercised within the church, and Paul is trying to regulate within the church. He's not talking about whether these people need to pray for the gift of tongues, or if you don't have the tongues, pray for tongues. They're already speaking in tongues, and they're doing it in an in a, in a way that is destructive to, towards the congregation at the time, so he's regulating it. And so I don't see that as being the same there. You see what I'm saying? No, I don't. Don't follow the point at all. Well, the point is is that he's not saying that you need to pray for the gift of tongues in order to have the gift of tongues. You need to believe in these gifts first in order to have these gifts. What, what I see consistently throughout the New Testament right, is you people said that you have are to gifted. believe in these gifts in order to have them. Yeah. All right, so. No, I'm not saying that. I don't believe you have to believe in them to have I them. I think in, in the vast, vast number of instances, the answer to that, I think, is yes. If well, somebody does not believe that God is uh, the the fact. Let's just take you two guys. You do not believe that. I'm, well, I'm assuming Tim. Maybe Michael's a little more less rigid here. You do not believe that God. <laughs> I don't see how I became the rigid guy. God bestows these gifts. You've been putting me as the rigid guy. I think as a foil. Okay. I don't. I, and maybe maybe you'll surprise me with your answer, Tim. I doubt very seriously if you spend. Uh, much times uh, pressing into the heart of God in prayer saying, Lord, I really want these gifts to operate in my life. I believe these are your desire for the church today, and I want to function in the power of these gifts, and I'm looking for opportunities in which to step out in faith and exercise these gifts. My guess is you don't do that. And I'm not, I mean, that's not a criticism. I'm just saying it's a reflection of your belief about what the Bible teaches. Well, yeah, so my And so my, is my it any is... surprise then that you probably don't have much experience in the gifts. Well, but what's interesting, though, is that you'll say, though, that like a man like Charles Spurgeon, who denies it, is operating in that gift. Sure. And so, you know, you would say, so he doesn't believe the gift, but you say he has the gift. He propositionally denies it if he was in a formal debate, but when something is spontaneously brought to his mind that he did not have knowledge of prior to that moment, he chooses to step out in faith, obey God, and possibly look like a complete fool in front of 2,000 people and tell a guy that he stole some gloves. So he's obviously, in his praxis being very submissive to a supernatural God who he feels has just uh, revealed something to him. So I would say in that moment, in his conduct, regardless of what he would say in a thesis, in his behavior, he was submissive and willing and open. But, however, but what your assumption however, hold is... On, hold is on. Okay. <laughs> however, one of the things that we're missing here is with these guys, whether it be uh, Luther or Calvin or Owen or, or Spurgeon, is that these guys aren't aren't rejecting the gifts because they're rejecting the Bible or or rejecting them because they have some type of deep, dark, inner spiritual desire to thwart the Spirit of God. They want the Spirit of God in their lives, just like I do, I think. And, and they want His power to be, you know, evidence within them. But whenever they look back upon church history, whenever they read the Westminster Confession of Faith and it says that they have ceased, that that's kind of what they go with. Now, now the Lord has to understand that these people are operating within a spirituality. I believe. I think that. I mean, of course, they all have problems. We all do. You don't have to be perfect before you can experience the gifts. You don't have to be doctrinally perfect. You don't have to be morally perfect before you can experience them. 
But my my deal is to stop and say, why why did God allow it to stop for so long in this sense? Now, again, I want to get back to the question, though, and I put that on pause. I want to get back to the question whenever Sam last time said, well, how do we know that it, that it did cease in church history? And we talked about arguments from silence on both sides. But I could make the same argument and say something like, I'm starting a new religion, and I, I believe that throughout church history, um, Jesus sat down and had dinner with everybody every single night for the all of church history. He physically came down and had dinner with them. Yes, we don't see any of it in church history. Yes, everybody's silent about it, but I think he did. And because they don't say anything about it, there's no argument that he didn't. But something so extraordinary happening to you, as Jesus in the flesh coming and sitting down having dinner with you, would make it into your diary, everybody's diary. And what I'm saying is the gifts coming upon you, these are extraordinary gifts. They would make it into the diaries of everybody throughout all church history. And just be since we see it so peppered, so sporadic, if at all, and I'll give you the peppered and sporadic, um, and even set aside the relic type stuff, this is where I say that it can't be God's will for it to be normative. The only ultimate decisive criterion as to whether it's God's will for it to be normative is the New Testament. It's not Owen. It's not Luther. It's not Calvin. It's not even my hero, Edwards. I admire them. I love them. I learn from them. I obey Paul. Which, which I, I admire that fully, uh, and, and I, I think that we, we imitate it, too. And, and I do. I do. And so I would say, I, you know, I'm, I'm in the Word of God every morning. I mean, that is my sustenance. That is what I live off of. And I live off, I and mean, my wife was pretty much bedridden for, for about four years, and I saw every day the healing hand of God. And, uh, and I, pray, I asked everyone around the country that I knew to pray for her, and many people, hopefully even listen to this, were with me during that time so i'm 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 hopefully fully believing in a god that speaks today to us and a god that uh, that heals in our midst uh, but you know as i i mean the reason we look to commentaries like we we probably all recommend to people as you're reading the bible as you're reading portions like uh, uh, parts of isaiah uh, the second half the second part of daniel as we're reading these you know, reach for commentators <laughs> not the first uh, you know basically there is a part where we say look to the wisdom of those who have gone before you they are not scripture so that's why we say no commentator on the planet is scripture but they guide us in proper interpretation of scripture and so that's why why we're saying is yes you know, we obey we we hold to the bible but you know we all know that every heretic has a verse as well and in no way and I'm calling you guys heretics but what i would say is arius holds the bible in his hand as well and so what arius needs is the Bible and teaching. And what I'd say is I need the Bible and teaching. Bible is my authority. Teaching is my guide uh, towards what makes for good teaching. What makes for a good commentary? We test the commentary and we test the teaching by the text. Every heretic has a verse, but he has a verse taken out of context. Scripture interprets Scripture quite well, and the, and the test of a teacher, the test of a commentary, is the text itself. So the test of a doctrine, again, is the text itself. And we don't have to argue about originality because this isn't an issue of it being original. We all know that we have quotes from Irenaeus. We, we have tons of a documentation from guys like Ronald Kidd up until 300. So we're not talking about something that wasn't being practiced in the church. You guys are asking big questions about why there seems to be silence for a period of church history, a long period. But, but it's not something that's being implemented for the first time in the history of the church. So we can't really ask the question of originality. It's not original. It's not creative. 
Well, and, and let me let me just throw this one other thing in here, just as a, a thought. This is probably going to have to be the last word. Okay, it'll be the, the final word. <laughs> we'll give let, you the final. Let, word. We're living in 2011. Since, let's, since you let, gave let's us a project dollar. our yeah, let's. I bought a dollar's worth of a, a dollar. Bought me a minute. Let's <laughs> let's say that Jesus doesn't return, and a uh, hundred years from now, four guys are sitting in a studio talking about this same issue, and they're debating church history. And uh, one guy brings up, well, you know, Calvin and. And Luther and Owen and these great people who influenced the church, they, didn't, they were cessationists and they didn't experience these gifts, so we shouldn't uh, expect them or pray for them in our lives. And then another guy across the table says, you know, but wow, back there in the, in the, the 19th and the, or the 20th and the early part of the 21st century, uh, man, John Piper and Wayne Grudem and C.J. Mahaney and Terry Virgo and Sam Storms. I uh, know. And, <laughs> and, and these other guys whose books have just changed the course and the direction of, of church history. They believed in the gifts of the Spirit and they practiced them when God was gracious enough to bestow them. So maybe we should be continuationists because of them and their testimony and their lives. We could play off figures in the history of the church one against another until we're blue in the face and we're finally going to be left to the question what saith the scriptures and again um, probably nobody has been more influential in the development of of uh, evangelical theology in the latter part of the 20th century than Grudem and Piper and they're both continuationists Wayne regularly prays in tongues I've been with him when he has John has given numerous illustrations of how uh, God has bestowed the prophetic gift on him in very much like Spurgeon in the midst of his preaching. So, you know, it's not simply looking back to the 16th and 17th centuries. It's looking to the 20th and the 21st centuries as well. So I just, I think the playing off of individuals in the history of the church only is good to a certain extent. I mean, it's fun. We like to see our heroes agreeing with us. We don't like it when they disagree with us. But in the final analysis, we have to submit to the, what, the authority of God's word on this point. And I know you guys agree with that. I'm not saying you don't. I'm just making an appeal to the people. Let's be submissive finally to, to Paul and Luke and Peter and James and John and not to John Owen, John Calvin and Augustine and others who were obviously not writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. Definitely, and I agree with you on that, and I think it's a wonderful word of encouragement for everybody out there. I mean, with me, it's uh, it, it comes down to not so much uh, do, I, do I have to have it normative throughout all of church history. I mean, it could become normative today. I... I don't know what the Lord's going to do, and I don't know how he works. And, and if for some reason in 100 years we do look back and suddenly it became normative, that's the way it happened, you know. And, and, and I don't know why the, uh, you know, it's up and down in church history. I mean, we would all admit that, that it is up and down to some degree uh, with regards to the acceptance and practice of these gifts. And I do believe that God is sovereign. And, and I do believe, you know, I, I, I may be unlike Tim, I do pray for these things. Uh, I, I do honestly seek these, t- these things, and it's not as if I... I, I give lip service to that here while we're going through these studies or anything like that because I want the power of the Lord. And I know everybody out there, you guys want the power of the Lord as well. And 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 maybe the Lord is evident in your life in a, in a very supernatural way in this way where you do have the gift of praying in tongues or you do have the gift of prophecy, and maybe you don't out there as well. And maybe it's, it's something that's confused you. And I hope that these broadcasts have at least been encouraging to you. I've never experienced these gifts personally. 
Okay, I have to do it through other people and through their excitement. I love to experience these gifts personally. Tim has never experienced them personally. Both of you guys are very involved in uh, in, in, a, in a in a in a movement that is grounded and stable as can be, doctrinally speaking. And so we love to have you sit down here in studio. And folks, we we, we hope that this has been beneficial to you. I don't know what exactly our purpose is, except for to sit down here oftentimes and discuss things that are important issues in the in church, in the Bible, and to our spiritual lives. So please, you know, we, we, we got a little bit heated in this last one. Uh, please understand we Love are still friends. Hot. Love can be hot. <laughs> we are still friends. And, and, that made me uncomfortable. And, and I think everybody will be back next week. So until then, we start our new series. We thank you for bearing with us throughout this series, both on the blog and here uh, on Theology Unplugged. And thank you guys for being with us each week. Until next week, JJ, you want to sign us off? Maybe you say sign off. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening in, and uh, we hope you're having as much fun as we are. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.